And Lord, we pray that we will be childlike in our faith, that we would have a trusting nature towards you, Lord, and to know, Lord, that you know best. And uh, Lord, always to look to you in good times and difficult times. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. May we be bold and strong and full of faith and authority. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been reading in this book, Immersed Kingdoms. We're starting into it for eight weeks, uh, reading about 20 minutes every day. And this week we've read Joshua. just want to read uh, or pray the prayer that comes at the very start of this book as we engage in this eight weeks of reading through Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, and David, or, and Kings. Let's pray. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, grant, we pray, that we might be grounded and settled in your truth by the coming of your Holy Spirit into our hearts. What we do not know, reveal to us. What is lacking within us, make complete. That which we do know, confirm in us, and keep us blameless in your service, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Years ago, I used to play a bit of rugby, and uh, I used to pray before the match, and uh, whenever I see sportsmen and women praying before a match, I, lo I love to see them doing that. But I suppose after a while, as, as, I, as I was praying, I started to ask myself, um, is it right for me to pray that we'll win? Is it right for me to pray for victory? And uh, I think as time went on, I, I realized more and more that there's no harm in praying for victory. There's no harm in praying that your team will win. Uh, you know, next, year, next month in the World Cup, we will see lots of people in postures of prayer and worship, particularly during the penalty shootouts or the close games or whatever. We will see lots of passion, lots of prayer, and lots of worship. So there's no harm in praying for your team to win, but I think I came to realize as time went on in my sort of late teens, early 20s, that, yeah, God inter is interested in the little details of life, but He's also really interested in the big picture. He's interested beyond things like, will my rugby team win? He's not disinterested in it, but he's interested really in the ultimate picture, the big picture. And that's what we've been doing over this last year, and we will do over the next year or so, is read through the whole of Scripture together. And it's really helping, I think, to keep in view the big picture the whole sweep of Scripture. And when it comes to reading the book of Joshua that we've read this week, I think that's extremely important because the book of Joshua is full of brutality. And so it's really important for us to understand how does this sit in the middle of the whole story? We're reading really the second half of Israel's primary history. We've read the first five books. Now we're going to read uh, the second half of what is really the sort of primary identity document of the people of Israel and us as the church. Moses, the great prophetic leader, is dead. He brought the people to the edge of the promised land, and now Joshua leads the Israelites into the land that the Lord 
has promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and through Moses and the people of Israel. All this was meant to happen, though, 40 years previously, 40 years ago. Whenever Moses sent 12 spies into the promised land, one from each tribe, but when they came back, 10 of them said, it's too big, the men are, are too big, we can't do it. There were only two men, one called Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and one called Hoshea, son of Nun, who returned believing that the Lord could give them the land. Moses gave Hosea the name Joshua, which in Hebrew is Yeshua. It means God saves or God delivers. Decades passed, as did a whole generation, except for Caleb and Joshua. As the people wandered in the desert, learning that the Lord does deliver, the Lord does save. It's amazing that as we start to read the start of Joshua, the Hebrew readers would have understood that this man, Yeshua, his name means God delivers. And the last 40 years of the history of the nation have been about learning the meaning of those two words, God delivers. And now the man who's been given the name by Moses, God delivers, leads the people into the land. So Joshua was recognized as a leader through much of his life. He was obviously recognized as a leader within the tribe of Ephraim. So whenever Moses looks for one man from each tribe, the tribe of Ephraim say, Joshua will go for us. He was also recognized by Moses as a leader, by the people of Israel as a leader, but most importantly, he was recognized by the Lord as a leader. And Exodus 33 gives us an insight into how Joshua developed as a leader. What was important to the Lord in choosing Joshua as the successor to Moses? There was a tent of meeting outside the camp, and Moses would go to the tent of meeting, particularly when he was seeking guidance from the Lord. And when he did, the pillar of cloud would come down and hover at its entrance while the Lord spoke to Moses. When the people saw the cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they would stand and bow down in front of their own tents. Inside the tent of meeting, the Lord would speak to Moses face to face, as one speaks to a friend. Afterward, Moses would return to the camp. But listen to this. But the young man who assisted him, Joshua son of Nun, would remain behind in the tent of meeting. There's a place called the Tent of Meeting outside the Israelite camp. Moses goes there to inquire of the Lord. It's where the presence of the Lord rests. It's where Moses seeks guidance in the place of worship and prayer. It's where the people of Israel go whenever they individually or as a family, they want, they want guidance or an answer or an answer to prayer, and they go to the Tent of Meeting, and they look for an answer from the Lord. But Joshua lives in the Tent of Meeting. He doesn't leave. Moses comes back to lead the people, to talk to the people, to communicate to the people. Joshua stays in the place where the, where the Spirit of God dwells. But 
even then, the death of Moses would have been such a profound thing in the life of the Israelites. He was this great prophetic leader that had led them out of slavery in Egypt. But his death also marked a new beginning. And so the book of Joshua begins with the Lord giving a stirring charge to Joshua. He tells Joshua, be strong and courageous. He tells them to obey the instructions given through Moses. He tells, the people, he tells them to lead the people across the Jordan River and into the land. And he says to Joshua, I promise you what I promised Moses. Wherever you set your foot, you'll be on land I have given you. No one will be able to stand against you as long as you live, for I will be with you as I was with Moses. I will never fail you or abandon you. So Joshua leads the people through the Jordan River on dry ground, reminiscent of how Moses led the people through the Red Sea. And there's all sorts of similarities between the early leadership of Moses and the early leadership of Joshua. And Scripture is telling us Joshua is like the new Moses. But then they come into the promised land. They start eating the fruits of the land. The days of manna are gone. The very wide and deep River Jordan closes behind them, and they find themselves in a place which, militarily speaking, is extremely vulnerable. In front of them is the fortified city of Jericho with men inside armed to the teeth. And behind them is a river, and they can't go back. As a military strategy, they're in a very, very weak position. And then Joshua has this encounter with this heavenly being, the commander of the army of the Lord. And one of the things that I find really striking is this. Here's Joshua. He's the brand new appointed leader his mentor and leader, the leader of the people for many decades is dead. They have gone through the river. It is closed behind them. They are in their rightful territory, but it may feel like foreign territory. He has this encounter with this commander of the Lord's army who has a sword in his hand and Joshua boldly goes up to him, leader as he is, and he says to him, are you friend or foe? Are you for us or against us? Whose team are you on? Now, if the Lord had told me, Joshua, I'm with you. I'm with you as I was with Moses. I will never leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. I will never abandon you. And I were to say to the commander of the Lord's army, are you for me or against me? Are you with us? Or f I would expect him to wave a sword at Jericho and say, friend, of course. Now let's get conquering. But what does he say? Neither. 
here's the thing that's really important for us to remember as we read through Joshua and the books that come after it. God never takes sides. God's always impartial. Now that may fire up all sorts of questions for us as we read verses like verse 21. Joshua and his men completely destroyed everything in Jericho with their swords. They killed the men and the women. They killed the young and the old. They even killed the sheep and the goats and the donkeys. This is difficult to read. It may be difficult sometimes for us to understand. But that's why it's really important for us to remember the big picture of what's happening in the whole of Scripture. We must place the conquest in the story of everything God does that the Bible tells us. And trust that through the conquest, the Lord was relentlessly patiently, lovingly pursuing His purpose of restoring humanity and all of creation to its full glory. We may say, well, boy, the Lord does work in mysterious ways, but that's what Scripture is all about, the fact that God alone knows what He's doing. Genesis tells us that Humanity had fallen, and that all creation had fallen with it. The Canaanites had for generations displayed the worst of that fallenness with their sexual promiscuity and perversion, particularly associated with fertility cults, as well as their callous practice of sacrificing children. The conquest was not genocide. It was divine judgment. That may not make us feel any more comfortable, but that's what the Bible tells us. This is not genocide. This is judgment. A loving judgment that condemns sin because it ruins life a loving judgment that doesn't take sides. And what we discover as we read on in the story of Scripture is this. Israel itself would later be judged by other nations. And it would be the Lord that caused that to happen. Babylon, Assyria, the Philistines, the Roman Empire. The amazing thing about the whole story of Scripture is this. The people of God, the Israelites, were the ones who felt the keenness of God's justice more than any other nation. One thing I've been, I suppose, struck by is thinking about this and reading about this over the last week, and I suppose over this last week, you know, an email came through from Right to Life that, that said that it was estimated that this year in England, Scotland, and Wales, 
10 millionth child was aborted since 1967. And I was struck by the fact that the reason why the Israelites went into Canaan, one of the reasons was to rid the land of a nation that sacrificed their children. The judgment of God is a loving just judgment and the ultimate purpose is to rescue humanity. The other thing that I find really striking about Joshua's encounter with the heavenly being with a sword is Joshua's response. There's a lovely verse that Walter read in our scripture reading, and it says simply, Joshua did what he was told. Joshua is an immense military commander. He is an immense man of God. And yet the Bible says, when he comes face to face with the commander of the Lord's army, Joshua fell on his knees. He took off his sandals, and he did exactly what he was told. And I imagine that in that place of placing himself at the feet of the commander of the Lord's army, Joshua was told the very, very unusual way that Jericho was going to be conquered. That in that place of complete submission to God, Joshua was told what he had to do. Scripture is clear. The Lord conquered Canaan. Again, we may wonder, does that make me feel more comfortable as I read through Joshua? But Scripture is unequivocal. It is the Lord who does the conquering. Joshua and the people were called actively to join him in that conquest. The final thing that I find striking is the similarity with a, a scene that comes much later on in the Bible. When someone of the same name, another Yeshua, is on his knees in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he is submitting utterly to his Father. And he's asking, is there any other way but the violent one that lies before me? And when it is clear that humanity can only be saved by the Lord's judgment falling on the sins of humanity, born by Yeshua himself, he stands up, he protects his disciples by telling them to put away their swords, and he shows them and us that the Lord's ultimate victory comes not through violent conquest of a nation, but through the Lord allowing himself to be brutally killed for the saving of all nations. The Lord is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is love, the giver of life and all good things. 
That's why he hates the evil that ruins life and destroys good things, including the evil in the human heart. He has and is and will do something about it because his name remains the same, Yeshua. God delivers. His final act of justice is still to come. Let's not fall into the trap of thinking that the Old Testament somehow is full of violence and the New Testament is not. If anything, the New Testament is much more violent than the Old Testament. The greatest violence is yet to come. There will be punishment for sin, corruption, lies, abuse, murder, promiscuity, theft, gossip, and much more. And the reason is to free creation from sin, suffering, and death. In the middle of history, there has been a wonderful substitution, one that was planned from the beginning. The Lord substituted Himself in our place. He came ahead of time to take the punishment that is due for you and me, hoping that we will accept the substitution. That's what mercy looks like. And amazingly, there's more there's also grace. Because not only does He take our place, we take His. So perhaps next month, if you watch bits of the World Cup, every time someone runs on and someone is substituted off, remember the fact that we get to go to the place of rest we get to go to the place of peace and privilege and authority that Jesus Christ gave up for us. And we do all this by the Lord's Spirit living within us. And we step more fully into our inheritance every time we decide to follow in the footsteps of Jesus, the one who fully submitted to the will of His Father. That's why Jesus said in that reading that we heard last week in the Beatitudes, God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole earth. So often when I've heard that verse, I've, I've thought, if I'm honest, I've thought, well, you know, of all the Beatitudes, that's probably the weakest one. But whenever you hear what that Beatitude means, from a Jewish perspective. The listeners of Jesus would have thought of another Yeshua. They would have thought of the leader who led the people into the land that was promised, a land that was so precious to them. They've been waiting for it for hundreds of years. You and I are called to battle in a different way. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Our battle is against the powers of evil themselves. How do we gain victory? 
by getting down on our knees before the Lord, listening to what he says, and doing whatever he tells us. We're called as the people of God in this place to go out into what is now the city of Bangor and to go out with authority, to go out with loving authority. You and I have been given the authority of Jesus Christ. He has taken our sin and brokenness. We have been given identity as sons and daughters of God. And with the Spirit living in us, we now have the authority to declare healing where there is sickness. We have authority to declare truth where there are lies. We have the authority to declare justice where there is unjustness, whatever that word is. We have been given the authority of Jesus Christ. Joshua, towards the end of his life, spoke to the people of Israel and, and basically gave his ultimatum and said, choose today who you're going to serve. Who are you going to kneel before? You're going to have to kneel before somebody and something. Who are you going to kneel before? And the people said, we're going to kneel before the Lord. And so I say to us, as Joshua said to the people many years ago, choose today whom you will serve. Because in that place of falling down before the Lord, we acknowledge that there has been a great substitution, that our brokenness, that the darkness within us has been given and received by Jesus Christ, that he took it to the cross and he put it to death. And he is raised to life. Jesus Christ is alive today. And by his spirit, he dwells inside everyone who accepts the substitution. Do you want to know how to crush or not crush the bottle? Do you want to know how to overcome the great pink glove of fear? Submit completely to Jesus Christ. Submit completely to Yeshua. And in that place, you will receive faith to overcome fear. And we will go out as the army of God, as we have been doing and will increasingly do, out into our homes and neighborhoods and workplaces and streets. And the Lord has given us every place where we set our foot. So let's go out and set our feet in many places and declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let's not be afraid to do it. As we said last week, let's go out and speak Jesus. Let's go out and speak light in the darkness. Let's go out and speak truth in the midst of the lies. Let's go out and proclaim healing in the brokenness. And all to the glory of God, through Jesus Christ our Lord.
Amen. Let's pray.